Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. You can find it on page 923 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to be spending our time this morning in verses 22 through 35, but for context, I will begin reading in verse 1. You know, one of the, the most precious but often underestimated gifts that the Lord gives us is that we as God's people can dwell in unity. That in grace and truth and hope and faith and love that we are brought together as a body to enjoy fellowship together as God's people under his rule and blessing. We, we, we don't often think about this, but guys, this is so important. Because you know, it's one thing for us to understand or begin to comprehend God's unsurpassing grace towards us in Jesus Christ. It's quite another thing to be able to encourage one another in that grace. It's one thing for us to be able to, to know truth and, and to, to cherish this once-for-all faith that we've been given. It's another thing for us to be able to stand together in that truth and to build one another up in that one holy faith. It's one thing for us to know something of love or, or something of hope. It's another thing for us to love and to be loved and to Again, help one another to grow in this most holy living hope that we have in Christ. You see, the faith, hope, love, the grace and truth that we've been given in Christ that unites us together is a precious, precious gift. Psalm 133 describes it this way, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil on the head running down upon the beard. And yes, understand that as an argument for beards. There's a, there's a brotherhood among bearded men, the oil running down onto the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there in Zion, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. How good, how pleasant, how precious, how eternally life-giving is the unity that we have been given in the Spirit, in the bond of peace. And friends, I hope that you have truly experienced it and can affirm it with a joyful and a heartfelt amen. But if you have, then you know that that unity is not easy to come by. It's not easy to maintain. If you haven't experienced that kind of unity, well, that's just because it's not easy to come by and it's not easy to maintain. You see, though we've freely been given this unity in the Spirit, in the bond of peace, in Christ Jesus, we all, each and every single one of us, must work very hard, very zealously to maintain it, otherwise division will occur. Because of our hardened and sinful hearts, we often reject truth. We rebel against God will, God's will and God's ways, and we put ourselves first before God and before others. And the consequence of that is division, is disunity, is living for ourselves. And at times, friends, that can happen even when we are well-meaning, even when our desires are noble ones. And yet, disunity can occur 
And when that happens, we, re- we bring reproach upon Christ and upon his church. We make a mockery of the gospel because we're not holding to sound doctrine and we are not adorning the doctrine of God our Savior with our lives. You see, our life and our doctrine are out of sync with God's word and the result, the consequence, is disunity. Disunity is a heart problem. Where disunity is present, sin is present. Now there are times when someone's doctrine is in such error or there are aspects of their life that are so not in keeping with the gospel to such a degree that we cannot maintain communion with them. We have to discipline them. We have to disassociate ourselves with them. But, from, but more often than not, what we try to do in order to attempt to present some husk, some semblance of unity, what we want to do is we want to go light on life and we want to go light on doctrine. Because here's the thing, if you can just reduce Christ's teaching down to some little nub, of this is all it means to be a Christian, then we can promote unity. If we can reduce the call to discipleship down to, hey, as long as you profess to be a Christian, then then you are. Well, then we think that we can promote oneness. But friends, all we're doing is feigning unity. We are trying to take a man-centered approach to producing something that is God-given. And we have no liberty to do that. But in truth, what is necessary is, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that we must keep close watch on our life and on our doctrine. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And so if we are going to try to truly move forward in unity, in the Spirit, as God intends, not some shoddy, man-made, fig leaf substitute of unity, then we must both uphold sound doctrine and confirm it through godly living. That's the God-given conclusion that is drawn from our text this morning in Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem council came together and they affirmed that in order for us to move forward in unity, we must uphold sound doctrine and confirm it through godly living. Because it's only then that we will truly experience just how good and just how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters in Christ live together in unity. And so with that, let's turn our attention now to Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, But some men came down to Antioch from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers 
who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and and Paul as, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord." And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Friends, if we are going to move together 
towards forward in unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace we, that we now have in Christ, it requires that we, uh, one, uphold sound doctrine, and two, confirm it through godly living. And so let's first look at how the Jerusalem Council upheld sound doctrine. This is important because there are many who want to say, well, doctrine divides, but love or Christ unites, as if those two concepts are somehow mutually exclusive, right? Doctrine bad, love, Christ good. Here's the problem with that concept, though, because if you hold to a very different view of love, or you hold to a very different view of Christ than I do, then guess what? We don't believe the same doctrine. It just doesn't work. And friends, if someone is in gross error when they think about love or they think about Christ, then it is our responsibility then to seek to teach them, to reprove, to correct, and to train in righteousness according to God's inspired word. And the reason why we want to do that is because the glory of Christ and the salvation of souls are at stake. There is cost to losing for the sake of feigning unity no matter how caring they might appear to be. And friends, that's what the Jerusalem Council was dealing with. There's this controversy that has erupted in the church because God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and so now thousands of people from different tribes and different nations are now coming to hear the gospel and believe They've heard the message that the one true and living God who, who sustains and who created all that there is has sent his one and only son to live a life of perfect obedience to all God's law, ways that you and I could never, ever live, and he gave up that life by dying on a cross as a substitute for sin. Three days later, he rose again in order to prove that he was indeed God's son and that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied and that all of those who turn away from their sin and, and follow him by faith will live with him forever in eternal glory. To live the lives that they were always meant to live, live lives that they were made to live in communion with God and with his people forever. As we forget about that, that unity is a part of what God's doing. And yet, we see that these Gentiles were saved because God made a choice to make himself known to them regardless of their background. That God, who knows the hearts of all, bore witness himself by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to the Jews. That God made no distinction, having cleansed their hearts by faith through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, taking from among Gentiles a people for his name. And thousands and thousands of Gentiles were turning away from themselves. They were turning away from their sin. They were turning away from their former manner of life, turning away from all that they would say defines them as a person and are now turning to Christ in faith to follow him as his disciples disciples, just as God calls each and every single one of us to in the gospel. Though these Gentiles were not Jews, they were now counted among God's people. 
They were now counted among the brotherhood, among God's family as his beloved children. And that is what we stand to gain when we repent of our sin and when we wholeheartedly follow Christ by faith. We are redeemed of our sin, yes, but we are also reconciled to God and to his people to live with them forever in glory. You've got to get that side of the gospel as well. But though this was clearly the work of God in accordance to his eternal will, dissension arose because some people, some, some from this conservative Jewish background were arguing, yes, you need faith in Christ. You do need faith in Christ. That's right. But you also need to be circumcised and keep the whole law of God. So basically they're saying you need Jesus, but you also need Judaism. You need to, in effect, become a Jew in order to receive God's promises to the Jews through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's important to point out, that's the issue that we saw there in verses 1 through 5. And it's important to point out, though, that these guys are not bad guys. These guys are not villains, These guys are not coming and saying, you know what, we are not sheep, we are wolves, and we are here to stand against all that God stands for. We're coming here with, you know, horns and pitchforks in order to lead you astray. That's not why they were coming. You see, they had the earnest desire to obey God in all things. They were zealous to live in light of God's Old Testament revelation in light of its fulfillment in Christ. They were trying to worship God in holiness and righteousness and in truth in light of God's inclusion of these Gentiles, many of whom's ways would have been considered according to the law polluting and defiling. And so how can we worship alongside them if their ways are contrary to what God seems to have set out before us. According to the law, it would defile true worship and communion with God and with his people. But friends, just because they were well-meaning, it doesn't mean that they were not in error. And that's possible not just for these guys, but for both sides of the issue. You see, these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees were in danger of adding to the gospel, saying it's Jesus and Judaism. But those on the other end of the spectrum, those who would say, nope, just bring them all in unquestionably, regardless of their practice, regardless of their way of life, regardless of of everything that they're living and doing, just let's, let's just bring them all in. Those people were also in danger of subtracting from the gospel. Either way, it's a gospel issue. These these people who would accept them in regardless of their practice were in danger of subtracting from the gospel by perverting the grace of God into licentiousness and corrupting the one true faith that we are to live and to contend for. And so though both sides would have considered themselves to be earnest believers, being off doctrinally, just a degree or two could lead both sides into destruction. And so this is a gospel issue. The glory of Christ and the salvation of souls are at stake even among these well-meaning, Bible-believing Christ professors. 
And this is no small issue because this is not just local to the church in Jerusalem. It's actually spread from Jerusalem now to Antioch and to Syria and to Cilicia, right? As far as the gospel has gone to this point, this error has now reached that to all of the areas that, that Paul and Barnabas had just gone on their first missionary journey are now being impacted by this error. And it's even leading Men astray, leaders within the church, guys like James and, and Peter and even Barnabas are finding themselves affected by this wrong line of thinking. And so the church had to come together and to come to terms on this issue. They had to deal with it. They needed to clarify and to uphold sound doctrine. And how did they do this? Well, by gathering the authorities in the church, the apostles and the elders, not just any bloke who would consider himself to be an authority in this matter. They didn't just kind of decide on what was going to be the truth at this point forward based upon the democratic process of, of what do you think and what do you think and what do you think. Okay, we'll just take that. Instead, they submitted themselves to the Word of God as it clearly communicates the work of God. They submitted themselves to these who had been appointed either by Christ or by the church to serve as apostles and elders to consider the matter according to the truth by examining God's clear work in light of God's clear word. This is important. That's all that they were doing is affirming, is this God's, clearly God's work or is this the work of man? And... Does it correspond with God's word? Not the words of men. That's all they were doing. In this council, they gathered together. They, they examined that, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they held fast to the will and ways of God. This council didn't make up doctrine. They did not decide or declare from this point forward what truth would be. No, they examined God's clear work in light of God's clear word. And that's what we saw last time in verses 7 through 21 where it records the testimonies of Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James, the brother of Jesus. Peter stands up and he says, look at what God has clearly done here. God has opened the door to the Gentiles, giving them salvation by God's grace, just as he has to us. And then Paul and Barnabas got up and they said, look, God himself has verified these things are true by the signs and wonders that he had performed. And then James got up and he said, look, we also know that this is true because all of the words of the, of the prophets agree with what God has done. And so that's what they did. This is what sound doctrine is. And, and guys, don't be thrown off by that word doctrine. That word doctrine just means teaching. This is a body of teaching. The, the body of teaching that is consistent with the will and ways of Christ. They held to the doctrine of Christ. Not, not the doctrine about Christ, but the doctrine that comes from Christ as revealed in God's word and in accordance with what God has clearly done. Because long ago, at many times and in many ways, God had spoken through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through our, his son. And in these words, what we see is that God does not just have promises for the Jews that you have to become Jews, but that his promises far exceed all that so that a remnant of all mankind might seek the Lord and might come to know him and that all of those Gentiles who are 
excuse me, are called according to God's name might come to him. And they come to him apart from circumcision and apart from the law. Right? Peter reminded us, look, you know, in, in trying to keep them to this, you're, you're actually putting God to the test. And not only that, you're trying to place a yoke upon them that, that our fathers nor us could ever bear. And so it says there in verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Look at that. It's a unanimous decision at that point to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So again, these are affirmed and appointed leaders in the church with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Again, all those places where the gospel has gone up to this point. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a testimony to the validity of their faith, that they were willing to risk their lives. This is how we know that somebody's genuine versus a false teacher. A false teacher doesn't die for lies. We therefore... Send Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. And so this is the sound doctrine that these leaders in the church upheld. With the confirmation of the whole church. And this, this sound doctrine was that the Gentiles were indeed saved and included into the people of God. Receiving all of the covenant blessings that God had promised to the Jews. Apart from circumcision and apart from keeping the whole law. And he reminds them, no, salvation has always been by grace through faith, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Though these Old Testament saints had not heard the name of Christ, they were trusting in the promises that pointed to Christ, and it was counted to them as faith, as righteousness. It was theirs in Christ. But to say that was true, that this sound doctrine of God that allows the church to move forward in light of this controversy is also to say that those men who were of the party of the Pharisees, James included, were wrong. You see, they were holding to false doctrine. This council did not say, you know what, both ways are right, both ways are fine, both ways are acceptable here. The council did not say, well, you know, both ways... Man, there, there might be some error on, on both sides of the issue, so we're just going to agree to disagree here. The council did not say, well, you know, I mean, whether it be the, the legal scruples of the Jews or, or the licentious behavior of the Gentiles, those are really inconsequential. They're really immaterial. All that really matters is that you love Jesus. That's not what they said. Now, the whole church submitted to the clear word of God regarding the clear work of God. 
This, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, is consistent with God's unfailing and eternal word, and this upholds God's glory. This is what accords with sound teaching. Those guys who had gone out from among us and troubled you with their words, unsettling you with their erroneous doctrine, although we gave them no instructions, they had no right, they had no authority. They were wrong to tell you that you had to be circumcised and to keep the law in order to be saved because no one could be justified through the works of the law. You see, upholding sound doctrine does require that we contend against false doctrine. It's a necessity. You don't just kind of, oh, bring it in. Just love Jesus, just bring it in. Doesn't matter. And how do we do that? We do it by teaching, by reproving, by correcting, and by training in righteousness according to the inspired word of God. Now, upholding sound doctrine also required this, that these men who were in error would repent and submit to the truth. It's just like we saw last time when we looked at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 took place before this council. Okay? And in Galatians 2, you have certain men from James, this circumcision party, who intimidated Peter enough that he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles, creating this Jew-Gentile distinction, can't really associate, have fellowship with him. And his example led to great confusion among the Jews who were there in Antioch, Barnabas included, so much so that they were led astray by their hypocrisy. And so Paul rebuked them rebuked them all because their conduct was not in step with the truth, with the sound doctrine of the gospel. Here's the thing, guys. The gospel is doctrine. And so after much debate had taken place in this council in verse 7, we need to read verses 7 through 11 as Peter's confession. We need to read verse 12 as Barnabas' confession. And we need to read verses 13 through 21 as James' confession. You know what? We were on the wrong side on this issue. Our doctrine was not in step with the truth of the gospel. But we stand here as we submit ourselves, our lives to the word of God and to his work and recognize that we were wrong. And so we move forward in the truth. Though they were at odds when they came into this council, they had disagreements in terms of doctrine. By God's grace, we can praise God that verse 25, when they walked away, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord. Realize the preciousness of that statement. Come to one accord. They, they would thereafter uphold this sound doctrine and would make it known to all believers in all churches by way of letter and by sending these faithful leaders to testify and to teach in accordance with this sound doctrine. And so upholding sound doctrine requires that we earnestly seek the truth in God's word and that we humbly repent when our doctrine is in error. We don't just say, forget it, 
It doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing, and you just do whatever you want to do. It means that we move forward in what God has for us. Now, before I, I move away from this, some people might be thinking, well, you know what? You know, I, I don't see a whole lot of doctrine here. And so are you saying that as long as we hold to the doctrinal statements that are laid out in this council or other church councils like the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Constantinople or the Council of, of Chalcedon that we're okay, that, that these councils form the necessary doctrinal boundaries for us that as long as we don't go outside of those those councils that were really okay and that everything that's not included in these council specific statements are just optional doctrine. We, we spent four weeks unpacking the doctrine of the Word of God. Did you see, if, you, if you're familiar with the, the Apostles' Creed, or you're familiar with the Council of Nicaea, or you're familiar with the Council of Chalcedon, do you see a, an explicit statement to that degree in those, in those councils? Do you see it here in this one? You don't. The answer is an obvious no here. We have to keep in mind that this council was a specific one-time event where the church was gathered together to answer the specific question, what is necessary for Gentiles to be included into the people of God? That was the issue, the specific issue that they were addressing. Right? They're not trying to provide us with an exhaustive biblical systematic theology to know the ins and outs of everything that God wants us to know about life and doctrine. But to deal with that specific issue, are these Gentiles, are they, are they saved or not? And as you read the other councils that appear within the history of the church, they were gathered together to address specific doctrinal errors. Doctrine with regard to the Trinity or with Christology and things of that nature. They're not trying, again, to provide an exhaustive biblical systematic theology of everything we need to know about life and doctrine, but are trying to deal with specific errors and to help clarify what Scripture teaches in light of these things. And so we can't just say, all you need to do is hold to those, those boundaries, those doctrinal boundaries that are provided in councils. Because if you do that, what do you do about, say, Romans? Because Paul talks about a whole lot of theology in the book of Romans that you don't have in any of these church councils. What do you do about the rest of Paul's letters or, or the rest of, of First and Second Peter or, or, or John's epistles? Do you throw those things out and say, yeah, they don't matter? No, they provide a whole lot more theology than what we get in these church councils. And even there, these letters were written to specific audiences for specific reasons. And so even Romans, as, as full and as rich as it is, is not an exhaustive, biblical, systematic theology of everything that God would want us to know about life and doctrine. 
gives us a great start. We would do well to take these truths to bear, but there are plenty of things that, that are not discussed there. Now, sound doctrine requires that we hold to the full counsel of God that he gives us in the entirety of his word as we interpret it faithfully in light of Jesus Christ. We cannot reduce sound doctrine down to what is mentioned in a few lines of a council letter. Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, they were sent out from this council to teach and to unpack the sound doctrine that corresponds to the truths in this short letter, right? They're giving greater detail, even in their conversation as they go out. And according to verse 27, they would tell them the same things in greater detail by word of mouth. So let's not dare think that we can manufacture unity by reducing sound doctrine down to a few pithy statements. But upholding sound doctrine requires more than intellectually affirming theological truths because our salvation is more than conceptual theological truths. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by this way, except through this truth, except by the life that we have now been given in Jesus Christ. We were meant to, as Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, not only to hold to sound doctrine, but to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior with our very lives. We're to put it on. We're to wear it. It's to transform us, to change us. We're now new creations, and we live in light of that new reality. Being a follower of Christ is more than what you profess to believe, though right doctrinal truths are essential to the Christian faith. Being a ransomed and redeemed follower of Christ also means that your life is changed by the grace that you have been given. Upholding sound doctrine means that you live by God's grace different than you did before and in continual conformity to Jesus Christ. And so in addition to the words of the letter that corrected the erring doctrine of the Jews who were arguing for circumcision and the keeping of the law were words to establish right doctrine for the Gentiles. Verses 28 and 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, sexual immorality, we can kind of get that, right? That kind of makes sense to us. But, you know, what about, you know, just things offered to idols, it's kind of a strange request. We don't have too many idol sacrifices here today. What about things that have been strangled? You know, I don't know about you, but I haven't come into contact with anything that's been strangled. I have no intention on becoming a coroner or a detective or a crime scene investigator to follow the trail of, of, of serial killers that choke people to death. You know, so it's like I don't have to worry too much about that one. Or what about blood? Like, how do we understand that? You abstain from blood. Okay, what, what does that mean for the scrapes on my kids' knees or, or how I eat my steaks when I go to the steakhouse, right? I'm like, 
I'm sorry, my child, but from here on after, you shall have to attend to your own wounds. Do I go to the steakhouse and say, as much as I hate to say this, just give it to me crispy and bring lots of steak sauce, you know, and just, wouldn't that take the fun out of eating a steak, right, to be chewing on a piece of charcoal in effect? I mean, that's not what they're getting at here. Now, these requirements run parallel to the laws given in Leviticus 17 and 18 for the Gentile sojourner who's living among the people of Israel. You see, even there in the Old Testament, these provisions were given to Gentiles to say, look, you don't have to be circumcised or to keep the law of Moses in order to live among God's people, but you do need to abstain from these things in order to live in fellowship in a way that does not pollute and defile. And that's the same thing for us. Look, you're called to live in such a way that your life is not defiling, that your life is not polluting that it is holy and and righteous and true before the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus declared all foods clean. And so this is not in contradiction to Paul's teaching on food sacrificed to idols in in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, but in fact is right in line with it and his teaching on idolatry as well. Now the principles here are threefold that we need to take away from this. One The Jews had long known the temptation to idolatry came most often through the butcher's shop and through the brothel. And this was especially true during pagan festivals and temple feasts when sacrifices were strangled with blood, the meat made available to all to celebrate would be there in abundance, which is rare for for most days. Sexual immorality and things polluted by idols would also abound. And that was part of the Gentiles' former manner of life. That's just part and parcel with the way that they lived, but no longer. They have now been united in Christ to God and to his people to live in holiness and righteousness and truth. The New Testament call is to look, be who you now are in Christ. You've been redeemed, you've been restored, you've been forgiven so as to live in a way that truly reflects who God is, to behold and to to embrace and to become like God's glory, his nature, his character, his purposes and promises. People ought to be able to look at you and see the holiness and the righteousness and the, the truth and the goodness and the mercy of God. They were to no longer live in ways that would bring a reproach upon Christ or, or confuse an unbeliever as what it means to be a Christian. We're not redeemed and forgiven to live in worldliness any longer. And friends, worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Do you get that? When people look at your life, Would they see sin looking normal and righteousness looking strange? That's worldliness. Because we are now new creations in Christ who are called to be who we now are in him. To walk in a way that is worthy of the manner of that calling. To live in such a way that righteousness looks normal and sin looks strange. So the first principle is to live in holiness, righteousness, and truth to reflect 
the nature and character of Christ to the world. Our association with worldliness confuses the Word and the work of God, and we are to do all things for God's glory. The second principle is right in line with the later teaching of the New Testament is to flee from idolatry. Those these false gods are not, false, are not gods at all. Our associations with practices can lead us to turn away from God and back into idolatry, putting other things first before God. Because here's the thing about these idols. People didn't worship those idols because they loved, say, Zeus, or they loved Hermes, or they loved what these idols were, but what these idols could stand to gain for them. You see, behind every idol was a value, right? You wanted power, there's a God for that. You wanted success, there's a God for that. You wanted to indulge in, in pleasures, there's a God for that. You, you want a, a healthy, fruitful family, there's a God for that. You want, you want to, to be wise and, and revered intellectually, there's a God for that too. And so what you would do is you would go and you would worship that God that corresponds to what your heart really wants so that that God would give you what you really want. What they were worshiping was the value behind the idol, that which they wanted most, that which they put before the one true and living God, that which truly had their affections more than Jesus Christ. And so the message of the entirety of Scripture and these requirements for abstinence is to flee idolatry. There is one God and one God alone who saves, one God who gives life and gives it in abundance. There is one God that can truly satisfy the soul, and he alone deserves all the glory. And so do not give your heart to another. And so we were saved <clears throat> in order that we might truly image the nature and character of God in our lives to live for his glory. And so we must flee from idolatry to live lives by God's grace that are wholly devoted to and find their eternal joy in him. And the third principle from these requirements is to avoid practices that would break fellowship or cause someone else to stumble. Guys, your sanctification is far more consequential than your own life, than your own soul. But the souls of everyone else in this room and beyond, it's huge. Changes the way you think about this life that you are called to live. The principle here is Christian love. It's not about what you want, about what you prefer, about what you think, about how you want to live your life. Those who have truly been united to Christ have now been united to his people. And when you truly recognize that, when you truly realize the gift of unity that we've been given in Christ, then, then by all means, we're willing to let these things go for the good of other people. We want to spend and to be spent for the souls of others. We will gladly forego rights and go, forego freedoms in order to leave no hindrance, no stumbling block to the gospel whatsoever, not for a believer and not for an unbeliever. 
And so that impacts the way we think about everything that we do. When it comes to doctrine, we don't want our opinions or our our false views to get in the way of truth. When it comes to life, we will joyfully abstain from anything that hinders fellowship or could potentially lead another person into sin. And that, too, is doctrine. We don't get this today. I think as long as we can sort of memorize systematic theology, those conceptual truths, then we're good to go. But that's not where the hill of beans if it doesn't change the way we live. It's not just the theological concepts regarding truth, but the way and the life of Christ. Friends, Jesus did not free us from our sins so that we would be slaves to our liberality or our license when it comes to our time, when it comes to our money, when it comes to what we would eat or what we would drink or what we would wear with the things that we watch or how freely we criticize every thought or opinion that runs counter to our own and throw it all over social media. Friends, when I see these things, and I see them often, it's evidence of the fact that people still don't get what it means to be united in Christ. That their true identity is not in Jesus, but is still in something else. And that too is failing to uphold sound doctrine. And friends, we've, we've seen the effects of what happens when individuals or when churches or when even entire denominations abandon sound doctrine. It's never been good. Every attempt, every, every ecumenical movement out there to try to reduce the call of Christ down to something that is just really lip service in order to produce some idea of oneness has failed utterly. Because we cannot generate that unity. We've also seen what happens in relationships. When whether it be the vertical relationship between them and God or the horizontal relationship between them and other people, when they abandon theological ethics that God calls us to live by, whether that be before him or before others, and they might try to put on a veneer that everything's fine, that I'm happy, that I can be good with God and I can do whatever I want, but it's not. And you know that it's not. And I'll just give you one example that hits very, very close to home for me, and that's divorce. Not that I've been divorced. I have not been divorced, but my parents have. 90% of my family has. 90% of Phyllis's family has. Divorce is prevalent in our family. And it doesn't matter how young or old you are or even how much abuse has occurred in that relationship, even when safety might require the dissolution of that marital covenant, no one walks away feeling unified Now, the only way that we can truly be united is by upholding sound doctrine of God that he gives us for life and for truth. The church in Acts saw that this was necessary and they upheld it faithfully because they knew that in order to move forward in true unity, they could not replace that with some cheap and worldly facade 
They didn't just go their own way and do their own thing. They were united because they upheld the biblical teaching for life and for doctrine. It matters. Doctrine matters. That's why I spent years teaching systematic theology in the evening, and it's worth your coming to the class. But friends, that's really easy for us to affirm. Yes, we need to uphold sound doctrine for life and for truth, but it is quite another to put that into practice. And so in the time remaining, I just want to quickly show how the church confirmed their commitment to uphold sound doctrine for unity by their godly living. Because like I said before, you know, it's, you can have all the right doctrine in the world, but if you don't confirm it through godly living, it is utterly worthless. You don't truly know what it means. And so second, we confirm through godly living. Now for the apostles and the elders... This meant not only that they are qualified for that position, that they have these clear convictions, they have competencies, their conduct and their character is in keeping with that position, and truly they're seeking to follow Christ by faith and, and be an example to the flock, but it also meant that they had to carefully consider this matter in light of the clear word of God and the clear work of God. And friends, this is big because as servants of Christ and stewards of God's grace, they had to put the biblical truth, the will and the ways of God in Christ before their own self-interests, before their own desires, before their own opinions, for the glory of Christ and for the good of the church. They understood the weight of it all, namely that the, the name of Christ and the salvation its souls were at stake, and so they carefully, they thoroughly, they patiently, and they humbly considered the matter. And once they came, by God's grace, to one accord on this issue, they clearly communicated that truth to the whole church. They sent out letters to make sure that the, all believers knew that this was true. Right? They're, they're actively teaching. They're wanting to expound upon the implications of this, this determination, this affirmation that, that the council had for the good of the whole body. They didn't just keep it to themselves. And so it required faithful teaching. It required that they shepherd the flock in faithfulness of life and doctrine, reproving, correcting, training in righteousness according to the word of God. And as it says there in verse 30, so that when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who, to those who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, continuing to teach and to preach the word of God with many others also. Again, I think that's another argument for long sermons. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> we also see their public affirmation of love for one another in unity as they sent two representatives from the church in Jerusalem along with Paul and, Aunt, uh, and Barnabas back to Antioch. And in verse 25, they called them beloved. They recognized publicly the great sacrifice they made for the sake of Christ. And friends, this is big because they are saying this of Paul and Barnabas, those who had no small debate or dissension with them, and Paul who had 
publicly rebuked at least some of them before the whole council. And yet here we see they are thanking them, they're expressing love and unity with him. Okay, great, but what about the church, right? I mean, we, we clearly see that this was the work of the, the Holy Spirit, according to verse 28, to bring them to one accord. But what did it look like for them to move forward in unity by upholding sound doctrine as a church? Well, in verse 5, we see that they clearly submitted to the leadership of the church, the apostles and the elders, to consider this matter. And when the apostles and elders came forward in agreement, we see in verse 22 that the whole church affirmed the decision. They were unified. And it says the whole church, the whole church. Now, for the whole church to affirm this decision would mean that those believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees or who were in agreement with them would have to be corrected so as to humbly repent of their error and submit themselves to this council's determination. That's what it meant forward for them, for, for them to agree. Not just like, I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. I'm keep believing what I'm, I'm just going to keep silent here, but I'm not, I'm not going to embrace this. I'm not going to accept this as true. I'm just not going to say anything. And I believe that they did because Luke tells us that they did. He says the whole church. And as you continue to read through the book of Acts, Paul's fierce opposition over this issue of circumcision comes from either unbelieving Jews who do not accept Christ or from believing Jews who are from Asia. Right? So it's not these people here in Acts 15. Now, they may have been influenced by these men, but they were not the men of Acts 15. This issue will continue to come up uh, again in, in the letters to the Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Titus, but it's not because they are still dealing with the errant theology of these men right here, but perhaps the collateral damage the residual effects that their flagrant error had produced. Friends, here's the thing about false doctrine. You can do a lot to try to minimize the damage, but you cannot undo it. You can't erase it away from the chronicles of history. You cannot erase it away from the hearts of men. You cannot erase it away from the erring minds of people whose hearts are set against God. All we can do is to come back to the truth as revealed in God's Word. As long as there is sin in the human heart and error in their thinking, false doctrines will emerge and they will spread. But on a positive note, look at the reaction of the Gentile Christians in Antioch. <clears throat> they received these church leaders, this Judas and Silas. And, and in verse 31, when they had read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. It says they rejoiced because it affirmed that they were no longer second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, but had all the rights and all the privileges and all the blessings that were given to the Jews, apart from keeping circumcision and the law. 
And even though this letter required that they abstain from idolatrous practices, including sexual immorality, they still rejoiced and found it an encouragement because their true identity was in Christ and not in the world. Friends, they were happy to pursue godliness and to avoid any practice that would break fellowship or lead another person into sin. They were happy to let those things go. They did not say, nope, that's my right, that's my freedom, and by golly, I'm going to do it. They said, nope, I'll gladly let it go. If it means that I don't lead them into sin, if it means that I don't confuse the gospel, I'll gladly let it go. Because they understood what it, mean, what it meant to be included into the covenant people of God who were meant to display his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, and his truth, his never leaving or forsaking love with their lives. And friends, they rejoiced to give up sexual immorality and anything else associated with idolatrous practices because the hope that we have in Christ is far, far better. These Gentile believers were encouraged and strengthened by the ministry of Judas and Silas. They were eager to hear them teach, to preach, to proclaim And when these two returned to Jerusalem, they sent them off in peace, being united in faith, hope, and love. This is big because this controversy shook the early church down to its very core, down to its very foundation. Could have severed the church before it ever began. And yet, we see it resulted in the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace between Jew and Gentile. Now, this was clearly the work of God, but it was a work that God did through his people as they considered the truth and held fast to the will and ways of God, as they upheld sound doctrine and resolved by his grace to confirm it with godly living. And so what about us? Do we make it our humble ambition to uphold sound doctrine in the truth that we proclaim And in the way that we live our lives? Is that of utmost concern for us? Is it truly our desire to live in our new identity in Christ? To encourage, to strengthen, and to protect anyone else who is from false teaching and from unholy living? Do we covenant to live together in that way? Or more specifically, are you earnestly seeking and able to be corrected by the Word of God and by the faithful ministry of Christ's church? Are you truly willing to examine yourself and to repent of error in life and in doctrine? Do you know the blessing of unity that we've been given in Christ? And is it your eager ambition to do all that you can to promote it? Do you submit to those who are in authority? Do you rejoice and delight in the truth? Do you love Jesus and long to live for him and not for the world? 
Do you truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of their background, regardless of their language, regardless of their skin color or how much money they make or how young they all are or how old they are or how much you feel comfortable around them so that you are willing to take on any restrictions or requirements in order to leave no stumbling block to Christ that would in no way inadvertently lead that brother or sister into sin? Is that the way we strive to live? This is the takeaway from this passage. Not to go light on doctrine or or light on, on godliness in order to pretend to be unified, but to earnestly and to eagerly pursue both in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in the way that God always intended so that we can truly experience just how good Just how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters in Christ dwell in unity together. But to move forward in that unity as God intends it, we must uphold sound doctrine and confirm it through godly living. And so let's pray for that. Father, we do thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ, a grace that redeems, a grace that restores, a grace that forgives, and a grace that reconciles. Not just us to you, but us to each other. You have given us this amazing privilege of being ambassadors for Christ, that we as a church together, we make the gospel visible, and you call us to live in such a way in light of this salvation, in light of this work that you have done in us to change us, so that by this transforming grace, by this unity in the gospel, people can look at the church, or they should be able to look at the church and to see what it means to be a Christian, to, to, that it makes the gospel visible so that they know who is and who is not. But Lord, we confess that so often that is not our ambition. That in pride we put ourselves first, that we seek our own way rather than, than your ways. And so, Lord, I pray that you would humble us all so that with eagerness and humility and also with great hope and joy and love for Christ, that we would make it our ambition to move forward in unity by upholding the truths that you give for life and for doctrine and by confirming it with godliness. Lord, we want to truly honor you, not just in with lips while our hearts are far from you, but that because of the great love that you've shown us in Christ, we are able to respond in wholehearted, deep affection for you and for all that belongs to you, your people included. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.